Um, If you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to Luke 14, or turn it on to Luke 14 uh, this morning. I bring you greetings from Raleigh, North Carolina. As Matt said, I pastor a church there that's not quite four years old, and uh, I've told Matt, Kevin, a number of guys here, and and my church a lot, uh, that I hope Imago Day Church can grow up and be like Austin Stone. You guys are um, the big brother, our elder brother, and we look up to you a lot, and so it's a great honor uh, to be able to address you again, actually, uh, here uh, on this Sunday. As we uh, look at Luke 14, I want to talk about kingdom hospitality. Kingdom hospitality. Uh, this is a passage has great relevance for us as we see what kind of king we have, what kind of ki- uh, people we are to be, and what kind of kingdom we're part of. Uh, if you're in the room today, uh, you're not a Christian, I think this is a great text for you to consider. Uh, as you just consider the kindness of our king, and how he's invited sinners like us uh, to be part of his kingdom. This passage has great relevance for believers, uh, both individually and corporately, uh, as we consider the fact that we have received Jesus' gracious hospitality. We should be the people, recipients of grace, who show grace uh, in a like fashion. And then as a church, hospitality just brings together so many different aspects of our mission. Uh, it's not only a biblical imperative, but it's also a, a cult- culturally appropriate and effective way to do evangelism. And it's also a practical way to love our neighbor, practical way to do justice and mercy ministry. Uh, I often tell church planters, hey, if you want to be a good church planter, learn how to do hospitality, because in large measure, that's what you're doing. And so with all of that, with all the significance that surrounds this, this subject, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help as we jump into Luke 14. Just a brief prayer this morning. Now, Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. So a question. What are some of your favorite meals of all time? I asked my kids this question recently. They normally get the early service, like on Thursday, as I'm preparing my sermons. I give it ahead of time, you know, and I was preparing a message on hospitality, and I said, so kids, give me your top five meals of all time. I have five adopted children. They go from ages 10 to 15. And uh, so they start rattling off birthday parties and Christmas dinners and all of the, mostly the things that had pinatas involved or some of their, their highlights, you know. So I asked my wife, Kimberly, I said, hey, baby, give me some of your, uh, your favorite meals. And so she mentioned a, a meal we had with some Jewish friends at a, at a Passover meal. She mentioned uh, an evening we had in Hawaii recently watching the sun go down eating shrimp. Sounds delightful right now, doesn't it? Um, she, she mentioned uh, Christmas dinners and Thanksgiving dinners. And they asked me, what are, what are you, what's your favorite meal of all time, Papa? And so I said, I don't know. Probably my favorite meal of all time had to do with our the day I proposed to my wife. I proposed to Kimberly at Arlington Cemetery. It's a long story. Uh, <laughs> some, I don't know, 13 years ago or so now. And, and um, she's one of three other, or four, four girls, and she's the first to get married. And uh, our first date was at Arlington Cemetery. She, um, she used to work on the Hill. Her dad worked in the Pentagon for 20-plus years or whatever. And, and she had just shown me around D.C. on our first date. So I wanted to take her back there. And I had a little speech ready. And because uh, you've got to have your speech ready when, when you're proposing. And so I, the, the short version was basically, I, I said, hey, baby, you know, these guys, as we're looking at all the graves, they all died, right? <laughs> this is going somewhere. They all died for a worthy cause. And she said, yeah, they did. And we're starting to reflect on that a bit. And I said, well, I want you to know that I'm ready to lay down my life for you too, to, to, to die for you. And she said, oh. And... <laughs> And I said, uh, what's our favorite verse? And she said, Psalm 34, 3, O come and magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. 
And I said, will you come and magnify the Lord with me in marriage? And she put her head right here, and it's not one everywhere. She proceeded to cry. <laughs> she said yes, and, and I put a ring on her finger, and we, we went down the hill from uh, Robert E. Lee's old house there down to the end of the, the little valley, and we were floating like a leaf on a river of romance as we headed to her house where her dad had this massive feast ready. I love salmon, okay? And he had the best salmon. And we had shrimp cocktail. And we had asparagus. And we had all sorts of things. We, there were bridal magazines and balloons. And all the, the sisters were there. And they're all going crazy. And, and the father asked me to say the blessing. And he welcomes me into the family. It was an, a wonderful occasion. And I bet if I were to poll the audience and ask you guys, what are your favorite meals of all times? They would include friends, family, good food, festivity, right? There, there are evenings that the Lord gives us that we don't want the day to end. You, you probably would not select the time you were eating ramen by yourself, you know, in the dorm. It was like, yeah, I was all by myself, a lonely mess, and I was eating ramen noodles. I would love to do that again. It was awesome. <laughs> or you're, drink, you know, eating tomato soup by yourself. Or there's a time I went through the drive-thru at Taco Bell. It was about one in the morning. I'll never forget that experience. It was so fantastic. Um, no, most of us would select an occasion in which we've got all the people we want to be with and we've got a great meal in front of us and we're laughing and we're enjoying one another's company. Now, that's saying something to us. That human experience, I think, is pointing us somewhere. And why is it that when, you, when, you, when a loved one dies, one of the places you miss them the most is at the table? Th- their absence is, is very real when you're having that meal and that chair is empty. Why is that? I think all of these experiences are pointing us to the coming kingdom of God. In other words, we were made for this. We were made for this experience. Isaiah predicts this in Isaiah 25, 6 to 8, as he's looking forward to the day in which we sometimes call the marriage supper of the Lamb, this great feast in which Jesus is there as the groom. We are the bride, and we are there with superior company, with pallets not damaged by the fall. And the Lord of hosts makes this feast for us. Isaiah says, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people, so all nations, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from our eyes. Isaiah says that's where we're going. Okay, So death obliterated. Tears wiped off our weary faces. And the Lord of hosts preparing a feast for the redeemed from all nations. Now, I know we have a lot of chefs probably in this room. Austin is the best food in the world, I think. Um, But the Lord of hosts has got everybody beat, I think, right? The Lord of hosts is making it. And if he's making it, I bet it's quite good. I bet it's quite good. We're not talking about Jimmy D's griddle sticks here or, you know, frozen waffles um, in the new heavens and new earth. We're talking the Lord of hosts, superior company, right? Jesus himself. Now, that ought to get us excited about the future. And that ought to help us get through this life when we know, as a Christian, this life is as bad as it's ever going to be, right? We just got to get through this. That future hope gives us power in the present. Now, unfortunately, that's not the vision of heaven a lot of people have. Like, you ask someone, what's heaven like? It's sort of like, well, I don't know, what's Mars like? I, I don't know. I'm supposed to get excited about it, but I have no idea what, what it's like. 
So here are some ideas. People, you know, pass along. Many think that heaven is an endless sing-along, which I like to sing, but forever? I mean, that, that's a lot of songs, man. Like, it's like okay, one more time. Uh, or others think, you know, heaven's like sitting in rows, being taught all day long. Others, you know, I think they get this from cartoons. They imagine like we're sitting on a cloud in a golden diaper playing a harp. And somehow that's supposed to be attractive to us. You want to go to heaven? No, I don't want to do that. No, that's, that's more like hell. Others have this eastern vision of heaven. It's where this ethereal realm of disembodied spirits just floating around and who knows where. And that's not attractive. No, we need to think more biblically about the future. Picture your best party ever, never ending, right? That's not all we're going to do in the new heavens and new earth. But it will be unparalleled joy, the greatest feast ever, Jesus himself, right? Glorified bodies. And the Bible has been preparing us for this. In fact, you could trace the theme of meals throughout the whole Bible. In the garden, it starts with Adam and Eve. You could eat of this, these trees. All this produce is yours except this one. And yet they rebelled and ate of that one too. And then God in His mercy redeemed a people in the book of Exodus. And they were to remember how the Lord passed over them and judged Egypt in, instead by eating a Passover meal in which they celebrated annually. And then as you trace the story of the Exodus, God Himself is the host providing for His people, right? Krispy Kremes falling from the heaven every morning. That's fantastic. You've got a water coming from the rock. It says that their sandals never wore out. Like God is taking care of them. And where is He taking them? He's taking them to a land flowing with milk and honey. A place of, 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 of wonderful vegetation. This is where God is taking His people. He is the host. And then Jesus comes on the scene and He is always eating with people. He even gets the title, Friend of Sinners. He, he's labeled a drunkard and a glutton, though he wasn't, because he was always with people at a table. He gave us the Lord's Supper at a table. After he resurrects from the dead, he shows up and he has a meal. And then we see in the New Testament, God's people gathering together, practicing hospitality, being exhorted to practice hospitality. And it all culminates in Revelation 19 to 22, where there we see the, the company of the redeemed coming in, and the Lord is hosting us. We are his people, and we will dwell with him forever. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is the Gospel writer that speaks most about hospitality. In fact, there's a guy who wrote a book called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, named Robert Karras. And he said that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either at a meal, coming from a meal, or going to a meal. And it's a fascinating study as you read through the Gospel of Luke and you see how often Jesus is hanging out with people, eating with people. Now, there's another really good book we commend to our church called A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester, a small little book, in which he just goes through the Gospel of Luke and shows some of these meal scenes. And Chester asked a question in the introduction. He said, how would you complete this sentence? The Son of Man came to... Well, we, most Christians that know the Bible a little bit would say, well, he came to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. But most would not include Luke 7, where Jesus says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And Chester said, the first two tell us why Jesus came. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to, to redeem a people. The third tells us how he came. Like, how did Jesus spend his days? He didn't start a, you know, a basketball camp. He didn't start a program. He didn't start a school. He ate with people. And he turned the world upside down. 
Now, in Luke 14, this is a special chapter on the meals with Jesus because Jesus actually teaches on hospitality. In the other scenes, he's just sort of at the table and he uses the occasion to teach, and he does here as well. But on this particular occasion, he's teaching us about kingdom hospitality. Okay? Now, I just have two exhortations I want to, I want to give to you from this text. The first is this. Jesus teaches us to invite outsiders to our feasts, to our parties. And then secondly, he teaches us to invite outsiders to the king's feast, to the king's feast. Now let's have a look at this in Luke 14. It all takes place, if you're looking at a Bible, in verse 1. It says, On one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So Jesus is invited, often in the Gospel of Luke, to the home of a Pharisee for a party. Now, if a Pharisee ever invites you to a party, be suspicious. Doesn't sound like much of a party, does it? you got the Pharisees, and they're not wanting to hang with Jesus. They're not wanting to get to know Jesus. They're wanting to trap Jesus. And so they have these questions for him, and Jesus does what he normally does with the Pharisees. He leaves them silenced. They can't respond to uh, their little question about the Sabbath. And now Jesus takes the occasion, the party, to teach the Pharisees a lesson on kingdom hospitality. So the first thing that he does is he rebukes the guest of the party. So Jesus is at the party. He's observing their party. And the first thing he does is rebuke those who are coming in. And he says, here's the problem. This is in verses 7 down to verse 10. He said, these guests want to be known. They want to be seen. They want seats of honor. And he then drives home this principle in verse 11, where he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Like, don't try to exalt yourself in this life. Don't try to be known and praised and adored in this life. Humble yourself. Humble yourself before me. Humble yourself before the king. And one day you will be exalted. Sort of the axiom of the kingdom. It's a way of humility, right? So he's at this party and he's saying, you guests don't get it. And now in verse 12, he pivots and he rebukes the host of the party. And so having rebuked those who are coming into the party, he says to the guy who threw the party, let me tell you how you should have done it. I don't think Jesus was ever invited back to this particular Pharisee. Like, he offends everybody at the table. Verse 12, here's how it starts. He said also to the man who had invited him, which is kind of funny. He's about to go after the guy who invited him to the party. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, how's that for rocking someone's world? Jesus is blowing up the paradigm of the Pharisees. Now, let's be clear on what Jesus is not against, okay? He's not against you hanging out with your friends or your family or church members. We have a word for that in the New Testament, koinonia, fellowship. It's what we do with God's people, and that's very important that we do it. John tells us this is one of the ways the watching world will know we belong to Jesus is by how we love one another. So that implies we're together. And Jesus himself spent time with the people that he loved. But when we're talking about hospitality, we're talking about almost a different category. Hospitality literally means love for strangers. A love for the sojourner, to use Old Testament language. God told his people, hey, you used to be sojourners in Egypt. I brought you in. Now you bring, you know, strangers in. So as we think about hospitality here, Jesus is is teaching us a lesson on if we're going to have a feast, a function, a party, don't limit your guest list merely to the people who are like you, to the people you like to be with, 
to friends, family. Especially don't do it for reciprocity's sake, to be repaid for what you're doing. So I don't, I don't think it would be wrong for you to have somewhat of a mixture between those who are outsiders and those who are insiders. Jesus seemed to have that mixture all the time too. But the, the preference here that he's driving at is to give preference to the poor. Preference to the, the blind, the crippled, the lame, and so on. So you can see Jesus sitting at this table, having first rebuked the guests. Now he, he looks at the host and he says, let me tell you what's wrong with your party. Where are the foster kids? Uh, where, where, where are the guys in the wheelchair? Where are the single moms? Where are the widows? They're not at your parties. This shows you don't understand the kingdom. Now, this is a tough word for us, right? It's a tough word. This is a good word for us. Have you ever loved someone who can't repay you? You know, I didn't realize how deep it was within me to be so angry at ingratitude until we adopted our kids. You know, you adopt kids, which is like permanent hospitality. And you think, man, they're going to say thank you every morning. They're going to get up and write songs about you and, you know, all this stuff. Nah, man. Ain't nobody got time for that. They, that's not how it works, right? I tell people all the time, you know, if you, if you want a dream baby, get a dog, okay? Um, the, the, uh, our, our little girl went nuts on an airplane coming back from Ukraine several years ago, and, and she was biting and kicking and screaming. We bring them out of an orphanage, and this is what happens, you know? There's no thank yous. How about we bite you, you know? Um, the, the stewardess, well-intended, said, hey, would she like a cookie? I'm like, she needs Ambien, okay? Like <laughs> a, a tranquilizer, anything. It's not a cookie. Like, and you're like, where is the thanks at, you know? Well, this is not why we do it. You know what Jesus says here? That, this verse gives me such hope when I'm having rough parenting days. Like, why on earth did I do this? Well, it's not so you can be repaid in this life. He says you will be blessed and you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. We do it because we have a different king. We have a different treasure, and we're living for another world. That's why we do it. We don't do it because it, there, there's some sense of uh, entitled uh, gratitude, you know, that, that we think is to be bestowed upon us, but no. No, we do it because we have a king who's loved us like this. We have a king who loved us when we were the poor. We have a king who loved us when we were the blind. Think about it. People who have received grace should show grace. Jesus is driving it home in this, in this section. The proper response to grace is grace. We once were the poor having nothing to bring to the table when God adopted us. We were the blind, unable to see the truth of the gospel when he opened our eyes. We were the crippled, unable to walk to God, and he came and rescued us. We who have received the king's hospitality should be the people displaying this hospitality because we can identify with the poor. We can identify with the marginalized because that's who we were. We don't stand over the marginalized in some superior uh, manner, but rather we see ourselves in them. We were the orphan that God has now brought to the table. We who have received grace now are called by Jesus to show this kingdom grace. And one of the practical ways we can love our world is through hospitality. Well, the Pharisees were having a hard time getting this. We have a hard time getting this. We really need to collapse the distance between us and the marginalized. There's way too much space in many evangelicals. We need to remember, as Jesus is teaching us here, that when you become a Christian, it's not just your moral life that changes. So does your social life. There ought to be an occasion in which people look at our lives and like, what are you doing with these people? 
And you can tell them, this is a sign of the Messianic reign. And they'll say, what? And you say, this is a sign that I belong to Jesus. I belong to another kingdom. We're pointing people to somewhere else. So let's not live by payback. Let's live by grace. Let's live for another reward. And let's remember that mission is not, doesn't always look extraordinary. I mean, what Jesus is talking about here, when you have someone over for Thanksgiving who's marginalized, he says, that gets my attention. He fills up the ordinary with eternal meaning here. And that's so fantastic that Jesus does that for us. Every day matters. We have a phrase we use all the time from Steve Timmis at our church. Effective ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Ordinary people like us doing ordinary things like, you know, having a barbecue or playing can jam or whatever you play, going running or you're all into fitness in Austin, I think. Whatever you guys do, just keep doing it. But bring in some other people, right, when you do it. And this is, this is the sort of thing that can happen through hospitality, right? I just know this. Lives are changed when you look at someone and say, hey, you want to come over to my house for a barbecue on Thursday night? And they come over to your house and boom, right? The conversation gets started. This is, you know, when our friends who are overseas on the mission field have someone in their home, say a, a Muslim family, that's big news, isn't it? They email everybody. They say, hey, we're having this family over. Hey, pray for this family. This is, this is wonderful. Well, we do the same thing right here, Right? The same thing. It doesn't look extraordinary. Jesus is not talking about light shows, disappearing hobbits, you know, like dancing chihuahuas. We're talking about cooking dinner and inviting people in. And it really matters. It really makes an impact. This is how Jesus himself was doing his ministry uh, during the, the three years while he was there. So, how are you doing at this? Have you ever in, invited someone over who can't repay you? I can see how a successful businessman will look at this text and say, this is a total waste of my time. You've got, it, you've got it in reverse, pal. Jesus is saying, this gets my attention. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's a great investment of your time. Caring for those who can't pay you back. Caring for those who might not even say thank you. You know, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, said that this was basically, said, the most disobeyed uh, paragraph in the New Testament. Newton said, one would think this were not part of God's word because it's so neglected by God's people. It is part of God's word. And so let's hear it. As Christians, I tell our church all the time, we should feel conviction, not condemnation. We should never feel condemnation if we're in Christ. But conviction is a sign that the Father loves us. The Father, in his kindness, calls us to repentance and change. So if we feel that today, we repent. I'm repenting with you. Let's do it together. God is calling us to this. He's calling us to open up our homes, open up our hearts, open up our lives, just as he opened up his to us. Now, let me just encourage you, when the people come over to your house, don't be a weird Christian, okay? Like, now, you know what I mean. We're weird. We believe weird things according to the news. But what I mean is super weird, okay? So they're coming over, the brisket's wonderful, you know, you, you, you've got some music on perhaps, everybody's having a great time, and then you pivot and do apocalyptic literature on them all of a sudden. <laughs> Just save that. I just think you should save that for later. Don't go four horsemen of the apocalypse uh, the first time you meet, okay? It's like, talk about Jesus, talk about grace, talk about what God has done for you, um, but, but you want them to come back, okay? You want them to come back, and they'll thank you for that also. So let me just encourage you practically, pastorally, think about occasions in which you can invite others to your parties. 
Think about birthday parties, um, holidays, uh, Thanksgiving. Think about international students who rarely ever visit an American home. Think about the snotty-nosed kid down the street whose dad's in jail and his mom is, you know, on drugs or whatever it is, the functionally fatherless that I call. Like, they're all around us. And so let's live with this gospel intentionality. And let's use our home as a tool of ministry. Right? It used to be said that the last thing to be baptized is your wallet. And now I would say, I think for most Americans, it's their home. Because Americans treat their home like a little castle with a moat and keep everybody out. That's not how we should be using our home. Right? We hear things like, my home is my refuge. And I just want to say, that's idolatry. Like, God is our refuge. There's a big difference in ownership and stewardship. We are stewards of everything God has given us. And I say, don't enjoy your home. Yeah, enjoy it. We have people over all the time, and sometimes I just say, I am going upstairs to take a nap. Right? You need to rest, that's fine. But use what God has given you. A lot of Americans feel guilty about having a big house. Don't. Use it. Use it for the poor. Use it for the foster kid. Use it for those who are in need. Use your home to the glory of God. Baptize your house. And it really could turn the world upside down. And if you're looking for a place to move, Raleigh, North Carolina would be wonderful. And we would love to have you in our church because we have like four people with jobs. So thanks. We'd love, love for you to come. Okay? If you would like to write a check, we'll receive it. Okay? Um, so invite outsiders to your feast. Secondly, invite outsiders to the king's feast. Now, Jesus is, is just rebuked the guests. He's rebuked the host. He said, this is how you had, ought to have Thanksgiving. This is already how you ought to have your 4th of July. And now there is one guy, verse 15, who thinks he's the exception to everything that's just been said. You've known this guy before. Perhaps he's been in your Bible study. Um, it doesn't really apply. So he says, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, brother. Now, this guy did have something right. There is a coming kingdom. There is bread to be eaten. But the problem is he thinks he's part of the kingdom. And Jesus has just told them, none of you understand the kingdom. This is a warning to every pious person who thinks if they mouth religious language, this, sometime, this somehow indicates they belong to Jesus, when it doesn't. Now, you can pray a prayer, throw a stick in the fire, sing Kumbaya, write your sins down, put them in a bottle, throw it down the ocean, right? Sing Jesus, take the wheel, whatever you want to do. Say, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean you're going to the kingdom, right? It may start with a, a decision, but a relationship with God is more like a marriage. It's a lifelong pursuit. It's a covenant relationship. And we have a tendency just, well, this guy, he's got some religious... no. Jesus is not pleased with this guy based upon verse 16. What he said triggers this parable to come. And typically the parable is, is meant to rebuke, right? And that's what he does. He says, but he said to him. And now there's this parable in which Jesus tells a story about a king throwing a party, inviting everybody to the party. And crazily, some people actually reject the king's invitation. And they all reject it for very lame reasons. Watch it here unfold in verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, which I just love that in itself. This is Jesus inviting, the king invites us to a party. 
Now, what kind of king does that? This strong, right, awesome king in his kindness says, you can come. I was watching a show not, not long ago about P. Diddy or Puff Daddy. or um, He's got several names, I think. I don't know what he is today, but... He throws a party that MTV said was the, the greatest party, parties in the history of the world. Once a year, everybody wears white, and it's just this extravagant party. Maybe you got the invitation to P. Diddy's party. I didn't. But if you didn't, it's okay. You've been invited to the party of all parties. Ain't no party like the Jesus party, because <laughs> the Jesus party don't stop, right? <laughs> this is the king, and he's invited us. We get to participate in this party, and we will wear white. 17, here it is. And at the time of the banquet, he sent to his servant in to say to those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. So everything has, that needed to happen has happened. Jesus came. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died. He rose on our behalf. He ascended to the heaven. He poured out his spirit upon us. We're waiting on the final act of the redemptive drama to unfold. Everything is ready You want to come to the party. You want to come to the kingdom. Now the natural inclination should be, who am I? That you should invite me. But instead, these three guys make excuses in Jesus' story. They all are lame excuses, and we can identify with them. Here's the first one, verse 18. It says, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Hey, man, we got the greatest party in the history of the world, the coming kingdom. Jesus, the Lord of hosts, he's wiping tears, right? He swallows up death. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Luther, Calvin, you know, Spurgeon. Spurgeon's there. Like, do you want to come to the party? Can't. Why? Bought a field. (laughs) Excuse me? Yeah. I got to go, and I got to go look at it. I got to go look at it. The Bible's so funny, isn't it? It's, I, have, I got a field, and um, I'm going to have to have a look at it now. In the Middle East. Like, who buys land without looking at it? Lame excuse number one. Jesus is teaching us here about the human heart, by the way. And I think what he's teaching, if I could be frank, is that, that sin makes you stupid. It, it leads you to foolishness. You begin to value things foolishly. This guy's like, I'd rather have my field than the king. Second guy. And another said to him, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go examine them. Please have me excused. Hey, do greatest party in the history of the world, Lord of hosts, making a feast. I mean, we're talking the best meat, the best wine, Jesus himself. You want to come? Can't. Why? Bought some cattle. Got to go look at them. Third guy, we can sympathize a little bit with. Another one said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. (laughs) Wow. Really? Hey, man, the greatest party in the history of the world. Like, you want to come? It's going to be fantastic. You you want it? You can't, man. Why? I'm vacuuming. Vacuuming. I used to fish, now I vacuum all the time. I got married. I got so many chores to do. Now, 
This guy was excused from certain things like the war for like a year, but no, nothing was prohibiting the, the people here in, in the Bible from going to this, this party. The guy should have said to himself, hey, free food, free party. What lady doesn't like to get dressed up? Go to a nice event. That's not what he says. He makes excuses. Now, we laugh at these things, and, and I think we should laugh at these things because the, the humor is teaching us the folly of human beings, the folly of rejecting the king. Now, you know, in, in seminary, we train our guys to respond to the biggest objections to Christianity. There are six big ones that we talk about all the time. There are more than that, but we talk about things like, well, what about other religions? What about the evil in the world? Um, Christianity is an ethical straitjacket. Um, what about the history of Christianity? We've caused a lot of trouble. Doesn't the cross make God look angry? And isn't the Bible socially oppressive? And those are real objections, and a lot of people voice them. But you know, as we send guys out to plant churches, we send them around the world, we come to find that very few people have these objections. Rather, what they have are lame excuses. Folly. Because sin blinds us. It, it creates a value problem in our soul, right? And so you ask someone today, hey, you want to come to worship with me? I can't. Why? Well, I pre-recorded uh, all my TV shows. I watch them on Sunday. Hey, you want to come next week? I can't. I'm, I work on cars sometimes on Sunday. All right. It's really not a good season. We hear this one a lot. Why not? Well, we've got little kids. Or we hear the reverse. Uh, it's not a good season because we just, our kids just left. Well, is it ever a good season? Uh, well, I'd love to come, you know, and, and join the you know, worship service, but I'm working on my tan. I'm working on my GPA. It's like you just rattle them off. I bet you've heard a lame excuse at some point, and you've probably given them. I know I did. And here it is. Jesus is confronting us today and saying, hey, how can you refuse this? Do you really want to turn your back on this king? Well, what happens next in the parable is Jesus says, I'm going to, I commissioned my servant to go out to the fringes, and I'm going to invite people in. Probably a picture of the Gentile world coming in to the kingdom. A picture of us coming into the kingdom. And praise God, the invitation went out to us. We read in verse 21, So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry. He's angry that people aren't responding. Why aren't you responding? And he says, after said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. I love that phrase. If you're not a Christian, there's still room. Still room. Praise God there was room for us. After he says this, it says the servant said, and the master of the house rather said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. The Lord wants a house full. He wants a full house. And he's saying, compel them. This is what we're doing, right? So we send people to the nations. So we send people out into the streets. We're compelling people. Language that Paul himself uses in 2 Corinthians 5. Come on in. Verse 24, he concludes by saying, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is, this is what Jesus basically says. The party's going on with or without you. But you've been invited. You won't be there with an excuse one day of saying, I wasn't invited. You were invited. It's as though the king is passing out invitations and saying, do you want to come? Everything has been taken care of. 
and many will make lame excuses. And we read in chapter 14, verse 33, why that is. He says, therefore, any one of you who will not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus has to take first place. And many will not be willing to put down their functional saviors, their idols, and follow the king. And so I just have three questions as I finish this morning. Right from what we've just been talking about. First question is, are you coming to the king's party? I mean, think about the greatest invitation you could receive today. What would that be? Maybe if you're a lady and you like to shop, and we just said, hey, we want to pay for you to go to Paris. We're going to give you $250,000 so you can buy a couple pair of pants, and you can, <laughs> you know, who's going to send you to Paris? Where do you want to go? I can't. Why not? I got some grass. Got a cut. No. You're going to Paris. Right? Guys, maybe you like to fish. Hey, man, we're going to pay for you to go to Washington to fly fish. How long do you want to stay? Three, four months? 50-yard line, Super Bowl. Like, what is the invitation that would just, just melt you? None of them compare, friends. None of them compares to the day we look at the glorified face of Jesus himself. And we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we enter into the kindness of our king. This strong, unconquerable king in his mercy has invited us to the table. So are you coming? Second question, are you anticipating? As Luther said, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. Right? The way we get through this day is thinking about that day. And as we anticipate that day coming, we also should live out the values of that day. It's, hospitality is a way that we can almost bring the future into the present. We show people what it's going to be like when the king appears. And you got people from every tribe and tongue. you got people from every socioeconomic strata. And they're all there enjoying it. So anticipate this day. Third question. Are you inviting people to the king's feast? Are you doing what this little servant was doing? Going out to the fringes of society and compelling people to come in? Are you going out to or in support of those going to the nations, to the fringes of the world? Unreached people groups. It's hard to get more fringe than that, right? Compelling people to come in and dine and live forever with the king. I love the story of John G. Patton. You've perhaps heard of it before. He was a very successful pastor in Glasgow, and he wanted to go to the South Sea Islands to make Jesus known. An elderly gentleman stood up and told him he was crazy. And he said, if you go to the South Sea Islands, you will be eaten by cannibals. And Patton famously stood up and responded, and he said, Mr. Dixon, you're up in age now yourself, soon to be eaten by worms. And he said, I confess to you, but if I could just serve my Lord Jesus, it won't matter to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And I confess to you that on that great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And the elderly gentleman said, after that, I have nothing more to say. And he, he walks out of the room. And they offered incentives uh, for Patton to stay and be their pastor, and he refused. And he goes to the South Sea Islands to labor among these people. Twenty years before he got there, two missionaries were cannibalized. He labored, he labored, he labored until finally some people confessed faith in Jesus. And he got to serve them communion. And he reported that occasion, saying this, for years we had toiled and prayed and taught for this. At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, 
but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love. I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. What a privilege to know this king. And what a privilege to invite others to the king, to the table. I pray that Jesus this morning would remind us afresh of the great hospitality he has shown us, the great grace he has shown us. And we who have received grace would show much grace to this broken world in need. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege to call you Father. What a privilege to be part of this kingdom. We could never thank you enough. And so with grateful hearts today, knowing that we should be even more grateful, infinitely grateful, we want you to work in our hearts deeply the gospel of grace. Work it in so deeply that it comes out of us in everyday life, like opening up our home and our table to the least of these. I pray this week you would use Stone, use Imago Day, ordinary people to do ordinary things with gospel intentionality. And I pray that the result of this sort of faithful, Jesus-like ministry would be many people being able to take the Lord's table, as Patton described. We pray for our friends, our brothers and sisters around the world today, many of them isolated, alone, making Jesus known. Would you grant them fruit, Lord? Would you grant them the privilege of taking those emblems and seals of the Redeemer's loves with others? We bless you. Thank you, King Jesus. We're your servants. We are glad children. In Jesus' name, amen.